Hello, and welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Althea. And I'm Anna. Okay, today we have with us Georgia Vesma, co-founder of this podcast, and we're going to interview her about how she came to be where she is today. Georgia, tell us about yourself. Hi, my name's Georgia. Uh, I am a PhD student here at the University of Manchester uh, in the History Department. I'm a little bit older than some of the other history PhDs. I'm uh, 28, so I have had a career before uh, coming back into academia. Yeah, so I am a first-year PhD, uh, and I work on uh, the female photographers who documented the Vietnam War. My first degree was in art history. I am just about to graduate my master's in one week's time. Uh, I did <laughs> I did all my degrees here at Manchester, uh, so it's a very sort of special and important place to me. Yeah, I'm very looking f- forward to getting sort of properly stuck into my project, I suppose. Yeah, it's really exciting. So what made you leave, turn your back on the corporate world and return to the bosom of academia? Um, the uh, the honest answer is that I got a little bit bored. I um I had a career in fundraising for about five years, which I did enjoy a lot, uh, and I still uh, sort of stay in touch with uh, a lot of my colleagues from that life and that time. But I, I sort of reached a point, I reached a bit of a professional milestone in that I reached, uh, I passed half a million lifetime Uh, sort of funds raised by me and the projects that I've managed Uh, and I was sort of looking at a promotion and then I didn't get selected for that promotion and I had what I can only describe as a really big tantrum uh, and realised that I was sort of perhaps chasing a definition of success that didn't really suit me so I, the day that I found out I didn't get the job, I went home, I wrote my master's application. I found out less than a week later that I had the place, I think. It was very last minute. And I did my master's while working 21 hours a week. So I had to convince my manager to let me drop uh, down from five days a week to three days a week. Wow. But it was absolutely the best decision I made. I managed to uh, do my master's full time working those hours so that I still had some household income because my uh, partner is also a student. Uh, so I didn't want to completely ruin us just because I'd had a, a tantrum. Um, made it made it through my master's, came to about three months in, so around this time last year, and I realised that I didn't want to go to work anymore. I wanted to study and I wanted to learn. And so the obvious thing to do was to apply for a PhD. So... Um, It was actually a very strange uh, route that I took in order to do that because I had started writing a PhD application that was all about uh, the development of art therapy. Like I said, my background is kind of in art history, so I was interested in like the visual products of early art therapy. And I was sitting in my office, banging my head against this uh, proposal that just wasn't working. And I had a text from my fiance who doesn't have anything to do with history. He studies business. And he said he'd been reading about this photographer called Catherine Loire, who's a French photographer, a woman, who had gone to Vietnam. 
uh, and taken pictures during the war. So I read this text, I typed her name into Google, and I spent the next six hours of what should have been a work day uh, just reading about <laughs> her. And by the end of it, I knew, firstly, that I had to write about her for her, my master's dissertation, and secondly, that there was so much more to this story that hadn't been told and that I was fairly sure I could get a PhD project out of it. Uh, and, risky chance. And as it happened, I could. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, uh, I, I took the risk. I went to see my, uh, my supervisor and we'd been talking about this art therapy project and I was just sort of sat down with her. She's a force of nature. And I just said, I'm not doing it. I'm doing this other thing taken aback a bit I think and said are you sure I said yep I'm certain this is the one and yeah it and it was the one it got um AHRC funding which is fairly difficult to get and I can see from just from the few months that I've been looking at it that there's room here for not just a book but maybe two it's a it was a very strange coincidence that brought me there but uh I'm very grateful that you sent me that text at that time that's just fate. Yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, it felt like something fell into place that day. I'm not a superstitious person, but I suppose that it was fate on that occasion. Since you left a career, I mean, we could talk about the alternate version of success that we're all following and living with because, um, mm -hmm. like, owning a home at 25 is not, like like owning home ownership um savings like these are things that like aren't going to happen to us until like much later yeah okay um mm -hmm. i think it's uh i think that that is something that's worth talking about because it is something that i have absolutely spent my my 20s kind of wrestling with i think is uh, the varying definitions of success uh especially because uh my my partner, my fiance, uh, started his undergraduate degree two and a half years ago, aged twenty eight. So he is uh, thirty one uh, and about to graduate from his first degree. So both of us have to deal a lot with other people's ideas of success and people uh, who have opinions about the fact that we don't have a house or that we don't sort of have traditional jobs. For me, I think it's. There are so many ways to be successful and so many ways to live your life. And it's hard to avoid comparing yourself to others. But the less you do that, the happier your life will be. I try and live my life that way. Varying degrees of success. Yeah, it can be, I don't know, You, if you like the family jokes from like successful professional ex, like, hey, when are you going to get a real job and get to you? I mean, you, you just have to kind of ignore that. Because, yeah, it's like, I have funding. This is a job. No, it isn't. <laughs> I think um, someone in my family told me that um, I wasn't financially independent if I had funding because the university paid me. And I couldn't help thinking, but your husband isn't financially independent because his job pays him. <laughs> yeah, that's a very strange, it's a very strange way of looking at it uh, to to think that because you get paid by the institution where you do your work, you're not financially independent. You know, the month before I started my uh, PhD, I had a paycheck from the university. The month after I started, I had a paycheck from the university. My job changed, but my employer didn't. It's, um, 
I think that perhaps helps me to keep it in perspective and try and treat it like a job. I'm one of those uh, work from nine to five kind of PhDs. I don't like it to interfere with my weekends. I don't like it to interfere with my evenings if I can avoid it. That can be easier said than done, as I'm sure all of us are aware. Yeah, sometimes you just have to, I think, ask yourself, you know, what would I rather be doing? Like, if I had gotten a job straight out of uni and I had been making, I don't know, 30,000 pounds a year since then, what would that matter to me as much as going into work every day and doing something that I really believe in and that really lights me up? I, I think that, like, Georgia, if I had gone the career route out of uni, I would have gotten bored and maybe thrown a tantrum too. Yeah, I think, you know, I was in that the exact position of, you know, I did have... a a very good salary for what I did and my work wasn't miserable it was fulfilling enough but I did start to feel like you get this feeling of your your main skill kind of atrophying and for me my main skill was always writing was always producing written work and as soon as I moved away from my job in uh in grant applications and into a job that was much more people focused it was less lonely and more enjoyable, but I wasn't using my main skill and I needed to, to be doing that. What about you, Anna? Do you have anything to say? Coming from a, um, a very sensible degrees family, because um, all of my men in my family are engineers. Okay. Um, my mom, My mom's first degree was in economics. Um, her second degree was in psychology, but she never really used it much. Um, and my sister is currently doing medicine. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, so... Adorable. I know, I know. And so my, my, my parents struggle to understand what I do a lot of the time. Um, I've kind of given up on trying to explain it. They just kind of blindly support that this is what I need to do. They're really supportive in terms of, they were like, if that's what you need to do, that's what you need to do. But they also do make a lot of jokes because they don't really understand it. Um, and that's something that I did kind of wrestle with, um, especially since I'm not financially independent in any way, shape or form. Um, and there are days when I kind of sit down and go, maybe I would have felt more successful, more fulfilled if I were in a nine to five job. But then I go back to my project and I love it too much to to leave it. So that's kind of that that what keeps me going because really the first two weeks in university I was in a new place. Um, I didn't know anyone. I was missing my boyfriend. I was missing my family. I was missing my sisters. Who both of them are in Newcastle, and I was just googling applications for PGCE, thinking I'll next year I'll go back to. Durham, do a degree in teaching and teach because this is what I I really want to do and I really hope I will be able to use my PhD to do it but if I can't I would rather teach because um, I love working with people, I love passing on knowledge, I love you know these kind of really hands-on jobs and teaching is what I always wanted to do from like when I would put my teddies in front of me and explain maths to them um, and then I realised I hated maths. Um. A little known, or not that little known thing about me, but that I moved to Manchester 10 years ago uh, to do a sculpture degree. Uh, and I lasted about 
four months before I realised, oh, they've put me in a studio and I just haven't made any sculptures. And I think any day now they're going to notice and I'm going to get in trouble. So I dropped out, uh, <laughs> wrote an application to do art history at Manchester. I was lucky to be accepted, uh, considering that all I had to show for myself was like, I didn't think they would f- ask me to make anything. Um, uh, and that was kind of what launched my transition into history from my initial goal of being an artist. You talk about supportive parents. My parents must have been absolutely despairing when I told them that I was going <laughs> to go and be a sculptor. Um, so I just, I cannot imagine what that oh, must have been like for them. Uh, so I think they were very glad when I did eventually sort of stop resisting the academic route that was probably calling for me the whole time. But uh, yeah, that was, uh, I really had to go home with my tail between my legs. And be like, You were right. I was not going to become a sculptor Aww. by just sitting in a studio and having big thoughts. <laughs> I mean, having thoughts is really useful in the degree that you're doing now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the big thoughts help a lot more now than they did when I was like, uh, I, I bought a load of old maps and I was like, I'm going to cut out the land and colour it in to look like the sea. <laughs> <laughs> that is so creative. And then Group Crit came around and people were like, what is this? <laughs> Basically, my move into art history was motivated by the fact that we would have group crit every two weeks where you'd go around the studio, you'd look at everyone's work and we would discuss it and talk about it, you know, using sort of art historical terms and language. And I was really good at group crit. I was really good at telling other people why their art was bad. But I was a little defensive about the fact that my art was very bad. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I feel like, you know, the land coloured in like the sea is a depiction of global warming, obviously. And how it's all going to sink. But that's the thing, like, about art, is if it's bad art and you make up a good enough story, then it becomes high art. Like, Yeah, um, I, I, I had a very <laughs> difficult conversation with Georgia about conceptual art and how I don't understand it. And because it requires a lot of effort from me. And I always feel that if I'm going to put a lot of effort into something, I need to feel like it's worth it. And I never do. So... <laughs> We had a very heated pub conversation about uh, about um, conceptual art. To be fair, I feel our friendship has not suffered as a result, but it got uh, it got spicy for a moment there. <laughs> I mean, I was also quite drunk, and when I'm drunk, I get very passionate about things that usually I just like let it go. Yeah. <laughs> Shortly after you left the pub quiz on Friday. Anna got very passionate at a guy who had some interesting ideas about Marxism. <laughs> Oh, I wish I could have seen that. Um, oh, yeah, was, you, you missed a was, doozy, um, and we the, are leaving it there. <laughs> was the certain um, male friend who was sitting with us involved in this conversation, or yes. had he gone home? No, said, said person was there. Oh, and... I missed a lot. <laughs> yeah, you, you did. You did. It got... Um, it, uh, that was another one that got real spicy. <laughs> but uh, it was all good in the end. It was. I mean, I mean, that's such a big part of PhD, isn't it? Is that everyone has strong feelings and everyone really cares about their topic and also it's a lot of young political people Mm -hmm. finding their voice people who are very very book smart uh sort of working out exactly how they're gonna negotiate the political world and you know i even if even when someone's opinions absolutely 
do my head in, to use a Britishism that I know Althea really likes. Um, and I think I'm one of the ones that probably does your head in sometimes. From time to time. But uh, <laughs> I think I try to be charitable towards people, even if I don't agree with their opinions, because most people here are young, finding their voice, finding their feet. Sometimes, though, sometimes the take is so bad that I just have to, uh, just have to walk away. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that is a skill that I really want to learn as I grow as a person. Um, the ability to kind of just let go and go, that's it. Mm-hmm. You disagree, you're never going to agree, but that's also not the end of the world, um, which is something that I think is very important, especially in the academic world, because in the academic world you're going to disagree with people and you're going to disagree with your colleagues substantially. And some of the best pieces of um, book reviews that I've recently read were by people who disagreed with the person who wrote the book on a lot of points, but they went, but generally speaking, they discussed this, this, this and this very well. And being able to say, you make a lot of good points, I disagree with what you're saying is a very, very good thing to be able to say and to be able to go, I'm very passionate about this subject, but I also recognise that this person is equally passionate about it. When you first come on campus, nobody has an idea who anybody is, and the way they try to find out is by having these discussions. So for the first few weeks, I would go home just absolutely like exhausted, somewhat stressed, because like I was, I was trying to be candid with people. But this would lead to a lot of discussions, no arguments, like nobody was arguing, but a lot of discussions because they're trying to find out like who you are, where you are, what you are. And it's, it was very interesting, but it was really good to see the tolerance that people were exercising. Just um, nobody agreed with anybody, but they didn't really care. I think when I first met you, um, Georgia, it was um, we just all like we just met each other and we all started talking about marxism and donald trump and different opinions on this and like we were just happy to have found each other even like we're disagreeing but we we're not caring it was like yeah i think that's um i i think that that is something that i've worked quite hard to develop and i think it does i was going to say it comes with time but i certainly meet people much older than me who are much less able than some young people to sort of just accept a disagreement and seek some sort of common ground for me there's there's certainly a limit there are some opinions that I cannot leave unchallenged and some people is who I will not tolerate but for the most part the thing that you realize over time I suppose is that if I met my 18 year old self I oh would, boy that would be I scary. would be furious with her opinions <laughs> she had some very bad takes uh, I hope I never have that opportunity to meet my 18-year-old. I, I really, I actually recently had this discussion with uh, my housemate and uh, we were talking about kind of how we really dislike our high school selves. We would never want to have a conversation with because, Jesus, were they horrible people. <laughs> you know, we'll be saying that when we're like... 30 or 40, ah, oh, myself in my 20s, what a mess. Yeah, <laughs> of course, because anyone who looks back on their past selves at any distance and likes what they see is probably someone who hasn't grown very much as a person. And I, I suppose that's maybe not a very 
charitable thing to say, but life is a process of changing, whether that's, you know, not all the changes will be for the better, but of course you are going to feel some distance between yourself 10 years ago and, and yourself now. And that's, you know, natural, healthy, and definitely helps me to keep perspective if I'm arguing with other PhDs who I know are five or six years younger because I can kind of think, well, you know, five or six years ago, I probably would have been just as strident about something. It's all about giving people the benefit of the doubt, I think. Nice to know what's going on in your mind when you look at us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just have this absolutely horrible habit of just sort of getting into wise old owl mode. (laughs) Just being like, well, you are all so so young and full of hope. (laughs) I, of course, have been there. Life experience, it's not the be-all and end-all, but it can be really, really helpful. For me, it's amazing when my work is stressing me out to just think, well, this is stressing me out, but actually the only person who can control this is me, and the only person affected by this is me. Whereas, you know, in my old job, I could have been stressed out and messed something up and people wouldn't have got paid, 60 people wouldn't have been paid that's a big problem that affects a lot of people. If I have a bad day and I don't produce any writing, that's a problem just for me. Yeah. And I can probably make it up the next day. Althea's got a wonderful saying about that. What's that? About productivity? One day you're on fire, the next day you're stuck in the mire. <laughs> I think about that quite a lot because I think uh, that's that's how it is when you're doing a self-driven project. Is I had a great day yesterday. Today I know that I'm not going to produce anything. And it doesn't matter. It averages out. So before we let you go, we always like to ask our guests about a funny story they have about their life in academia. Okay, so my funny story is actually from my research, and it's about Catherine Leroy, the uh, the French photographer who I mentioned before. So Leroy is an absolutely amazing figure. She was um, probably the second female photographer to uh, to land in Vietnam, um, and she arrived in Vietnam three years after the first female photographer. So Katrine Loire arrived in 1966 and quickly began to make a name for herself. She was um, parachute trained, so she made a parachute jump. She uh, sort of took photos on the front line. In she was hit by shrapnel and she was treated on a, a Navy hospital ship. She was very well known. Almost anyone who met her had uh, very vivid recollections of her. She is uh, described near universally as tiny and extremely ferocious. She was five feet tall uh, and very, very feisty. She would wear like adapted army fatigues that were much too big for her. And she would wear like a bush hat with um, her pigtails sticking out, uh, always one or two cameras around her neck. Um, spoke very good English but with a a thick French accent and she was uh, captured by the the North Vietnamese army during uh, the Tet Offensive and took pictures that made the front cover of Life magazine. She was completely fearless. But uh, the anecdote that I would like to tell you about, I'd like to tell you it first of all from uh, the perspective of an official complaint that was filed against her. So this was uh, after she made her first parachute jump and when she wanted to make a second. On or about the 4th of October, Miss Leroy tried to force her way aboard a helicopter, 
which had already allotted five spaces to correspondents who had previously been booked on the flight by the ISO section. When the aircraft commander insisted that he could not carry another person, she proceeded to revile him with foul language. (laughs) This is but one of several occasions on which Miss Loire has used coarse language to berate field and aircraft commanders who did not acquiesce to her demands. As a result, it was nearly impossible to gain assistance for any correspondence at Dongha. And now the same event reported by someone who uh, was interviewing her. Not long after she jumped with the 173rd, she was eager to jump again, and seeing a small group of marines climbing into a helicopter with parachutes, she asked if I could join them. I said, oh, I'd love to go with you. Things were as simple as that. The officer arrived, she made her request again, and he told her no. It didn't stop there. Loire, wearing her wings from her earlier jump, insisted that she was qualified. The officer was condescending to her, she believes. And she responded in kind. I became disagreeable, she says, euphemistically. And it escalated. It was ridiculous. And there is a version of that story in which she does not just swear at the officer in question, but kicks him. (laughs) Uh, Her press licence was revoked, supposedly for six months, for her anti-American behaviour, although it was reinstated a month later. I am in awe at Katrine Loire. Uh, as I said, I, I wrote about her for my MA dissertation um, and visited an archive of her photographs and correspondence. Uh, there's a letter that she writes home about another occasion where a male journalist tried to get her licence taken away again, in her perspective, because she took better pictures than him. I feel like uh, it would be very interesting to see the official record on the on the complaint. But yeah, everyone who I have ever met who has met her or talked to her sort of skirts around the fact that she was obviously very argumentative, <laughs> highly aggressive. But I, uh, I think that's why she interests me so much is that it probably would have been easier for her to get her way by playing the game. But she chose not to. She chose to put her foot down at every given opportunity. And uh, I, I feel like I sense a bit of a kindred spirit of someone who was never going to go quietly. I thought that was kind of a, a funny take on it. I became disagreeable. Is <laughs> how I. <laughs> that's what happened at the, uh, at the pub quiz. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about um... Marxism and I became disagreeable. <laughs> Oh, it's difficult to keep agreeable when you're talking about Marxism. You have to be disagreeable when you're planning a socialist revolution. Yeah, it's true. Well, I mean, it's you true. need some agreement, but yeah, you need to. Well, the people need to agree, but you need to disagree with the upper class. Yeah, the oppressors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, a, po- a podcast is probably not the place to uh, to plan our revolution. They're too radical. They might like revoke our podcast license. Oh, that's true. <laughs> This was incredibly lovely, Georgia. Thank you for being our guest and for the wonderful story. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. And remember, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a new podcast about the lighter side of humanities research at the University of Manchester. If you're a humanities researcher who has something funny to share, please be in touch with us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at NSFP Podcast. 
Have an adequately happy existence.